Nick, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Wonderful. Thank you very much for asking. A uh, lot to talk about uh, your important work and 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 how that how that uh, kind of is helping in a very important issue, which we will be referring to as child transportation today, I believe. Um, but maybe you could just let our listeners and viewers know exactly what keeps you busy. Yeah. So uh, so thanks for that. So. Uh, I'm the founder of Deliver Fund. We are a, uh, a counter human transporting. Uh, and I think you've probably nice. explained to your audience on why we're using that, that language organization. And, and essentially what we do is we collect data and, and build technology and we make that data and technology to law enforcement, to industry partners. And then now we are making it available to the public uh, and really focusing on parents so that parents can protect their children from predators. That's, you know, important work for sure. And and this is obviously a, a private endeavor, isn't it? From like a private entity rather than a state backed initiative. Yes. Uh, I'm a, a big believer. And this is obviously after working for the U.S. federal government for 17 and a half years, you know, I started as a, a military special operator in the Air Force pararescue teams and then was recruited to the Central Intelligence Agency where I worked in a very specialized unit for a number of years. And I, while in in many cases, the government is a, a good solution, uh, it, the cases where it is a good solution are the cases where it's the only solution. There's too many problems plaguing society currently that we are just looking to the government to solve and that results in all types of problems everything from over policing to uh you know law enforcement officers essentially acting as social workers here in the united states which is things they're not they're not professionally trained to do and we really need to as a society come together and start working together with both obviously the the private uh sector and then with commerce in order to solve most of these problems. And it doesn't matter if we're talking about human transporting or we're talking about the opiate epidemic, it, it really is on us to do what we can. And so we are a, a private nonprofit. We are 100% funded uh, by, by private donors and, and industry partners. We actually do not take any government money. So the government, uh, I like to tell people that uh, government funding doesn't come with strings it comes with chains and we don't want those chains wrapped around our hands so we uh, uh it's private the the private society that that keeps us going all right well it's not every day we get somebody who is in the cia on the show so i suppose just uh obviously you can't tell me everything but i suppose two questions spring to mind and why why would somebody go into the cia what attracted to you and secondly where where are they hiding the ufos uh, great questions, and I'll, I'll give you answers to both. Um, why would somebody go into the CIA? Who didn't want to be James Bond or Jason Bourne growing up? Uh, and I am uh, a red-blooded American male, just like any other. That that seemed like a pretty cool job to me. Uh, obviously, started in military special ops, and the uh, the unit that I was at at the CIA primarily recruited from the special operations career fields. So um, it, it's it's a, a cool place to go. And like, why wouldn't you want to get there? Now, what you learn very quickly when you're at the CIA is 
that Jason Bourne is not a real person and uh, the Bourne identity and 007 is not a follow documentary about the way intelligence operations go. <laughs> In fact, people ask all the time, like, what's the what's the closest correlation with those types of obviously fiction films? And I try to tell them that Jason Bourne was actually really bad at his job. Because he kept getting <laughs> caught. And, and, and James Bond was really bad at his job because all the bad guys knew his real name. So, so you know, in, in my entire time at the CIA, uh, which was you know, a number of years, over, over half a decade, I got in one high-speed car chase. Lasted for about a little under 10 minutes. Uh, and that was after countless intelligence operations, right? Uh, so, so intelligence operations are not, especially even at the, the pointier end, if you will, of the intelligence operations that I was at, it's not constant car chases and gunfights and, you know, knife fights and phone booths and things like that. I mean, if you're good at your job, then that means that nobody even knows you were there or by the time they figure out that you were there, you're long gone. So there's, if you're good at your job, you never get caught and there's really not a lot of action. Uh, and the, uh, the UFOs, uh, well, they're buried in my backyard. I suspected Nick, uh, for sure. I mean, that, that, that's a great point about, I mean, I, I, I when I was, when I, as soon as I said CIA, my, I got images of James Bond straight away and I thought, surely he's not going sure. to say that. And you did. And I'm just wondering in, in terms of movies and TV, like Jason Bourne, James Bond 24, does that give the public a kind of, inflated idea of what the intelligence services are in terms of their technological advancements and their you know general omnipotence yes it does and in fact uh, if you want to talk about a movie that's very realistic when it comes to uh, the the intelligence agencies um, i think uh, i believe it was chevy chase and spies like us it's oh, a little more like it. that uh, i'll put that on my list you know because you a comedy Yes, it's a comedy. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, uh, it, it's, it's, it's a very, very cool place to work full of incredibly intelligent men and women. Uh, and, and this isn't just in the CIA. This is also, you know, in the, the British and, and secret intelligence services uh, within really the five eyes countries that I had a lot of interaction with very, very good people that are doing their absolute darndest to try to keep their families and their countries safe. But at the end of the day, politicians get involved. And I'll tell you, every single time there has been some type of intelligence failure, some type of intelligence screw up, uh, it is usually not because the people on the ground didn't know. It's because the politicians got involved and started pushing their agendas. And it's really the politicians that need to start holding accountable for everything from intelligence failure to military failures. It has nothing to do with the men and women on the ground who are doing the work. That's a that's a great point. And it's something I mean, I I, I would I am still very interested in nine eleven and the, the you know the documented operations and one thing that stands out around about that time was a kind of almost uh, you know ad adversarial competitive nature between the CIA and the FBI for instance and yes. you know information sharing wasn't always forthcoming and it's it's often said and I appreciate there's a you know a big hindsight bias at play here but it's often said that they really had key piece of information between them that if they could have collated maybe they could have been a different outcome and i'm just wondering if that's something that you has continued or, or something that they're you know they're better at now in terms of you know playing nice <laughs> for want of a better phrase 
you know, I don't want to um, denigrate brothers and sisters at the CIA or or the FBI, but the reality is you're looking at two very different places, right? Intelligence is left of boom. It's left of the incident. <laughs> Investigation is right of boom. It's trying to figure out who did it. And so now there is that there is a Venn diagram there with some with some overlap, but for the most part, uh, you you have competing priorities. And so if you have competing priorities, one is to investigate, the other is to essentially predict the future, you're going to have competing philosophies about how to do that. So a win for the CIA is not necessarily a win for the FBI and vice versa, because the CIA is not putting handcuffs on people, contrary to you know, what conspiracy theories on the internet think, right? The CIA does not have the ability to arrest people or, or anything like that, right? That is all Department of Justice and the CIA per executive order one, two, three, three, three does not collect information on, and is actually forbidden from collecting information on us citizens. And so, so there is oftentimes a, a juxtaposition between the two where they are at, at odds as to what it is they're actually trying to accomplish. And so if the CIA figures out that there's a bad guy in the country and they then just get the state department to say maybe i don't know revoke their visa and kick them out of the country or something like that solves the problem but that doesn't give give the the fbi a win in their camp right nobody at the fbi gets promoted for that and so i do think that there you know there there is room for a a kind of central arbiter uh you have uh you have a similar system in the UK that actually works very well, where you have a essentially domestic intelligence capability that does not have law enforcement power, right? They can't go arrest anybody. They can't, they can't actually take action against a citizen. They're just there to inform the, the intelligence branch and the, and the law enforcement branch as to where it is they have commonality. And, and I think that that works quite well. And so, you know, in America, we have we're we're protected by relatively friendly countries on you know our north and southern southern borders and vast oceans on the left and the right. So that has kept us safe traditionally for you know hundreds of years. But now that things are starting to move a lot faster, and we have internet communications, and you know people can essentially disappear faster than. Uh, than they've ever been able to do before and then reappear in other places. Uh, we, we really need that, that intelligence and investigative methodology to, we, we need the, we need the Venn diagram to become more like a circle. That's a great answer. Yeah. That's, that's really put things into perspective in terms of, you know, roles, responsibilities, like expectations for sure. I mean, I've, I've, you've obviously spent time in the Marines and that, that fascinates a lot of people. And the question you all probably always get asked, which I'm going to ask you again, because I wouldn't want to disappoint anyone, <laughs> uh, pertains to the sort of, uh, you know, physical entry level exams and, and expectations in order to get mm. in the Marines. And I think people really just would like an idea of just how grueling that is and, you know, what's expected of you just from a physical standpoint to even be considered uh, a Marine. So I was in the the Air Force uh, pararescue teams. Um, so that's very similar to I think in the UK it would be like the uh, um, your the RAF uh, maybe your, your para yeah your your para commandos um, in the Royal Marines. Um, but you know we we do things a little bit differently, obviously in in the United States. Um, but it's 
you know, it's very similar. And so really within the entire, you know, supply operation component. So it'd be more, it'd be more, more akin to, uh, say 22 squadron, uh, SDS, you know, something, something along those lines. And the, uh, when you're in the special operations forces, it really depends uh, on the selection process and whether it's a land-based selection or a water-based selection. So the, the, and the difference is you see higher attrition rates in water-based selections because in a water-based selection process, which means you're spending a you know, significant time in the, in the water and, and in the, in the United States military, the, the, the branches of service that do that are the, uh, the air force pararescue and combat control teams the Navy SEALs and the uh, Marine Special Operations community. And the, the reason why it's different and you see higher levels of attrition in, in the water-based selection processes is because it doesn't matter what level of talent you have. So if you're a really good runner, you can always run faster. If you're really just genetically very strong, you can always do more push-ups or more pull-ups. But if we put you underwater and we take your air away, well, every single human is going to react the same to that within within a, a small threshold. And so what people don't understand is that the athleticism required to be in a special operations community, and this this isn't just in the U.S. This applies, uh, this applies to really all of the, the NATO partners. The level of athleticism required is not that much higher than what you would get from a, a high-performing amateur athlete. You don't have to be a professional-level athlete in order to get into these. It's actually the, the cognitive discipline, right? The, the control of your mind that is the thing that gets most people. There are plenty of people that I went to selection with who were far more talented than I could ever hope to be, and they were stronger and faster than I could ever hope to be. But at the bottom of the pool, when uh, they had to perform tasks before they could breathe, they couldn't, they couldn't get their mind under control and they would make the choice to surface and get air before, before they finished the task as opposed to finishing the task. And that is really the big separator. And so anybody who's been through these selection processes will tell you it's 40% physical 50% mental, 10% getting lucky. Uh, and, uh, and the reason I say 10% getting lucky is I, I went through somebody and, uh, or went through selection with somebody who was again, smarter, faster, and stronger than I could ever hope to be. Uh, it was amazing in the water, but he's running. And then all of a sudden his femur broke. I mean, his femur just, there's so many stress, fra stress fractures in his femur. It just broke. Okay, well, there's nothing he could really do about that, right? No, no amount of human performance is going to overcome the fact that your femur broke, and so that's what I mean by by uh, there's a certain amount of just getting lucky that that also plays into it. Did he break his femur in the water? No, it was uh, it was during a uh, a running evaluation. We have to, you know, they basically trash us all day every day for a week and then at the end of that week you have to perform tests under within a certain standard and i believe the the test there was a six mile run and he was just doing his standard six mile run which was no problem for him he was a he was a athletic phenom and his femur just broke I, and i distinctly remember it just he was up ahead of me and just watched him just collapse 
uh, and start screaming in pain on the track. <laughs> so, so yeah, that, that's, that's, that's getting unlucky. Yeah, for sure. Ouch. Um, I mean, obviously with the experience you've had CIA Marines, can, and do you ever get annoyed with the way these things are portrayed in film in, a, in just in, in terms of not necessarily whether being portrayed as moral or not, but whether it's accurate in terms of procedure, you know, uniform, the way you, you operate uh, certain machinery or weapons, perhaps can you can you kind of leave your brain at the door with a film and enjoy it for what it is? Or do you find yourself nitpicking mistakes? No, I don't. Uh, I, I don't watch a lot of film. Uh, haven't for for quite a while, but when I see those things, I mean, it's it's very much a mindset. Um, I don't get irritated because I I understand they're trying to entertain the audience. Like that, that the the purpose of those films, say, be a, a James Bond or a Jason Bourne or a you know your latest military thriller. The purpose of the film is not to show the public an accurate portrayal. The purpose of the film is to entertain people. That's why they're doing it. And the reality is, is that most, it, if, if you were to say, do a follow documentary of my operations overseas, after, after you'd watched a couple of them, you'd kind of find the rest of the film pretty boring. Uh, with, the exa- with, with, the, with, the, with the exception of when things go wrong, then things get real exciting. But the reality is in war, I did 30 combat deployments and all the, you know, all the bad places. It, it, there's a lot of downtime and there's a lot of boredom of just kind of waiting for approvals and waiting for things to happen and waiting for the right person to sign off on something or approve your mission or Intel to come in or somebody to show up or whatever the case may be. I mean, there, there's just a lot of, uh, there's a lot of downtime and a lot of boredom and who would want to watch that? Well, when, when during the various stages in your career did kind of child transportation land on your radar as something that you, you cared about and you wanted to invest more of your time in? I mean, how did, how did you become acquainted with this, this crime? I had both in, the, in, in special ops in the military and at the CIA, I had seen the you know, child transporting issues across the globe. And one, I always thought it was an over there issue, Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam. There's no way this is happening in the English speaking westernized countries. That was, that was, uh, you know, obviously a wrong mindset, but that's what I was thinking. And then the second thing I was, uh, I just assumed was that there was a Nick McKinley somewhere in all these different governments who was focused on this issue. I was focused on primarily counterterrorism and, and intelligence issues and, uh, you know, and then when I was in the military and personal recovery and rescue issues, so I just figured somebody else was dealing with this transporting issue. And until I was in, uh, I was in Lashkarka, Afghanistan, and I was working with a counterpart in the Joint Special Operations Command, uh, and we were working very closely with our um, our UK counterparts, and we had what I like to call smoking gun intel on a child transporter uh that was moving children from uh from pakistan into afghanistan and selling them for really kind of whatever purpose somebody wanted to use them for and we had a a child who had been used by somebody who was building bombs in order to test a bomb and the child was blown up and in 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 tribal cultures like that children don't really go missing that, that 
doesn't happen very often because kind of everybody knows who everybody else is and it's highly, highly networked. And so in the case that a child does go missing, it's like, oh, well, you know, they know that that belong, that child is so-and-so's and they're three valleys over and they're going to be going there in two days. And so they'll just take the child and get the child back to the parents. However, when we had a, a child who obviously had, um, had died nobody like there was there was no funeral locally there was like nothing happened and that really made us curious about like, why did it happen so they ended up tracing intel to this child transporter and so we wrote it up sent it up and there really nobody working that issue and i don't know how it is in the uk but i can tell you the united states is a here's a great example we have a drug enforcement agency 90% of drugs are legal. So most, most drugs that the Drug Enforcement Agency actually enforces laws against are legal drugs. They're just being sold illicitly, right? Without, without proper prescriptions and things like that. We spend billions of dollars, multiple billions of dollars on this war on drugs, which is not going well at all. And we're losing it uh, catastrophically. And yet 100% of human transporting is illegal for the 13th Amendment of our Constitution. And we don't have a centralized law enforcement agency that is solely focused on that problem. Our Department of Justice is doing what they can. And the, the men and women who are, are working that issue are doing a great job, but there's not very many of them. Same thing with our Department of Homeland Security and, and you know, the 18,000 law enforcement jurisdictions that there are across the United States. So that's the problem. And that's really where, when I figured that out, I, I, I really understood that I knew how to solve that problem because of all of my experience in the counterterrorism fight. So I thought if we can create a centralized software platform, we can start harvesting the data that law enforcement, industry, and public partners need in order to screen for this human transporting to keep those, those transporters from ever getting in contact with the child in the first place or keep them from being able to get a bank account or get them arrested and, and so their victims can be can be rescued right we we start actually facilitating and enhancing the existing exist, existing system so that it could start working better we could actually get to the bottom of this problem and so that's uh in march of 2015 i left the cia and left with a plan to to build this and here we are next week will be uh, nine years later wow okay well there's a lot to talk about in terms of your organization and just the, the crime in general. Just before I ask my next question, a reminder to the uh, the listeners and, and the viewers, if you've got any questions for Nick, get them in the uh, the chat now and I shall read out the best ones and just probably ignore the insane ones, uh, if I'm honest with you. Uh, but um, Nick, maybe you could tell us a little bit about this, this uh, concept that many of us have about this being a, an over there problem, a foreign problem. And, you know, you, you've openly said this is spilled into the English speaking world. What what are some things that may surprise people by the extent of, of which this is a problem in the English speaking world? I'm going to use U.S. data because obviously we are focused here in the U.S. and I'm not really familiar with the um, the data as it applies to the U.K., but but the, the concepts are exactly the same. 
In the US, we have a National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, a phenomenal organization that coordinates missing child cases across the entire United States. The traditional narrative of human transporting is that children are abducted by strangers and then they are transported. Where the reality is, when you look at the data, 0.0001% of the missing child cases in the United States are stranger abductions. However, 92% of those cases are what they refer to as endangered runaways, which means that in most cases, you have somebody contacted the child on the internet, groomed them and manipulated them over a period of weeks to months to sometimes years, and then uh, manipulated them and talked them into running away, usually into the arms of a transporter who then gets them under control and starts selling them by the hour. So oftentimes what we think of as prostitution or escort services is actually not somebody who's doing that willingly. It's somebody who is being forced, fraud, or coerced into participating in that market for the economic benefit of somebody else. That's what we're dealing with in westernized countries, uh, especially in the westernized countries where we don't have brothels and you know and things of the sort so that's i think the first uh the first myth and the first thing that people need to understand is that parents do not really need to be that concerned at least in the united states of the van with free candy spray painted on the side that's coming through their neighborhood to to abduct their children that's not (laughs) that's not the problem the problem is this the broadband connected microcomputer that people have in their phone or, or in their um, in their pockets, and that their children have, and are talking to human transporters directly under their roof through, uh, and that's through gaming consoles, social media, uh, you know, games like Roblox, really anywhere where children are are coming together in order to communicate. You're going to have the predators go to where the prey is. So that, that's the first big myth. Uh, the second big myth is around immigration. And you can call it legal illegal immigration. It doesn't really matter. Um, so in the United States, that you know there are human um, predators that are bringing people across the border in order for, the, for those purposes, and that's just not the case. Uh, you have human smuggling which is essentially where somebody's choosing to go to a place and they're asking somebody to smuggle them there and get them there illegally. And the reason that you need to control that is because those people who are now in that country illegally, they exist there outside of the legal system. And anybody who exists outside of the legal system is open to exploitation. So those are really the two biggest myths that we've seen. Okay, that's that's really painted the picture for me. So yeah, I can I can get my head around that and how that kind of permeates the the Western world and and uh, the English speaking world specifically. So I mean, just to clear up, I mean, like prostitution, for instance, is illegal in the UK. Um, you know, places in, in Europe, sort of like Amsterdam, it isn't. 
uh, depending on certain regulations and it's regulated, but obviously people can still be exploited. Am I right in thinking there's a blanket ban on prostitution in the United States or do certain states have certain loopholes and, and rules that differ? We don't have federal laws on that issue in the United States. It's uh, uh, we have we have federal laws that are adjacent to that issue, but that is primarily left up to the states and it's illegal in all 50 states with the exception of, I believe it's two counties in Nevada, which are out in the middle of nowhere um, where prostitution is, is legal. But other than that, it's, it's blanket illegal across the United States as well. And I suppose that some people get around this by advertising it as an escort service and not explicitly a Correct. sexual service, but it's okay. Yeah. My experience of Vegas was getting stopped whilst walking down the strip, asked if I wanted girls every 10 minutes or so. And I kind of, I, I kind of thought, isn't prostitution illegal? I wasn't quite sure how that works. Okay. So and, and these people are obviously being exploited. And like you say, they're, they're outside the, um, the, you know, the legal framework because some of them might be illegal immigrants. H how can you spot this? I mean, how, how do you co collect this kind of information mm -hmm. to be able to, you know, help in some way? There's 32 different indicators that we use that really delineate the difference between human trafficking and and prostitution but the easiest way to think about it is this um, anybody who is in the human transporting market is somebody who is being again forced defrauded or worst into performing that act for the economic benefit of somebody else anybody who's in the prostitution market that is somebody who's making a choice to engage in that activity and they are getting to keep the proceeds of their labor now, it, for the purposes of law enforcement and for our, our industry partners and things like that, both are illegal. And same thing with an app that we released that allows parents to screen selectors like phone numbers and email addresses. Those are also, uh, you know, th that, that empowers, say, parents to make sure that somebody who's associated with this criminal underground is not talking to their child. Because whether or not somebody agrees or does not agree with the illegality of prostitution, that is still somebody who's associated with the criminal underground who should not be talking to children. I think we can all agree on that. And that's really where, where we draw the line, which is this, you know, who should have access to and be talking to and associating with children and who should not. And if you're above the line in adult society, uh, there, that opens up a lot more, um, a lot more freedoms and a lot more opportunities to maneuver than it does if you're below the line and you're engaging with children. And the way that the human transporting market works, as we talked about earlier, is you have you have these transporters who are talking to children online. And they'll start talking to them and say Instagram or some type of, of social media platform or an Xbox or a, something like that. And they just are talking to them as a friend. And then eventually they, they take the conversation a little bit deeper and then they will do what we call off-platforming, which is where they try to take them from that public platform to a private platform like WhatsApp or Signal or you know, Trima, some, something, that is, is something that is encrypted and a little more personal. So they kind of hide under the blanket of privacy. Now, that off-platforming, that is the opportunity 
in order to stop that communication. So let's say you have a, somebody's talking to a child on, I don't know, pick your online game or your phone game. It doesn't really matter. They're talking to them uh, and Minecraft or Roblox. And they think that they're, they're talking to another friend and they say, Hey, hit me up on this phone number on WhatsApp. And uh, we'll, we'll talk there. Well, if that phone number was associated with a or, or is, is currently posted on a commercial sex advertisement or was posted on a commercial sex advertisement, that's a problem. Because that means that, that the person who's pushing that phone number is probably not who that child thinks that it is. So, so that's where that, the, that phone number data, email addresses, things like that come in as a screening mechanism in order to protect children from, and, and give parents the ability to also screen also young women who are say dating and meet some guy on Tinder or whatever it is, right. That, that the kids do these days, uh, right. They, they need to be able to screen for connections to these, uh, to these markets and connections to the criminal underground. Yeah, that, I mean, there's there's so many concerns there. I mean, how how hard is it for a parent to navigate this in the modern era? Because you would think historically, you know, protecting your child would just be a case of you know worrying about potential strangers, family members, um, uh, teachers, perhaps you know, people in the church. Now it's open to the the a global threat in sense in the sense of who can make contact with them via devices and i mean what i mean how how difficult is it for parents to navigate this in the modern era and what what kind of advice could you give them about you know unmitigated use of devices and things like that it's impossible for parents to navigate this in the modern age just i mean think about you know something that's been in the news a lot which are like around generative ai and the 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 um large language models you know the chat gpts that are released think about how fast those things are are moving well think about every time that you have an uh, a, an update on your iphone or on your android device the settings change and you need to go back and and re re um kind of rejigger the privacy settings to, to get in line with what it is that you want. It's impossible for parents to stay on top of. And, and when children can just spend all day, every day, really focusing on getting good at operating these devices and getting good at, at using them. And parents have jobs and diapers to change and dinners to make and groceries to, to do, you know, go shopping for and laundry, right? And they have, they have so many other things. There's a possible way they can keep up on it. That's why the, uh, the, you know, parental controls are important and we're big fans of, of companies like Bark and Aura who are doing, who are doing good work to create controls and Apple is increasingly doing a good job. I'm not an Android user, so I'm not really sure what they're doing, but I'm sure they're doing their best, but really we, we have to move away from this concept of parental control and move more towards this concept of parental intelligence where you're helping the parent to understand what is and is not a threat is it's impossible as an example if a, if a child gets pushed a phone number over a a gaming console you could just say as a as a policy in my household you you cannot use any other communication platform well as a parent how are you going to know what that what you even just said there's so many different communications platforms at there's no possible way you check 
to see whether or not your child was on any of those communication platforms. So it's a whole lot easier to just say, all right, anytime there's a phone number, we're going to run a phone number. We're going to, we're going to essentially collect intelligence so that we can make an educated decision about what we're going to do next. It's, it's crazy, isn't it? Because I, I suppose a parent may be forgiven for thinking that, well, the child is on the, the game console or the, the game or on another device. That's a safe bet. That's not, they're not on the internet. They're not on message forums. They're not scrolling WhatsApp, et cetera. They're not on Instagram. Whereas obviously people will exploit any means necessary to get, at, you know, and prey on vulnerable people like children, won't they? Yes. Yeah. And, and so it, not only that, but parents might finally understand that their child is playing a Roblox and a new game is launched two days later that they don't even know the name of, much less know to know to be concerned about. And that's why we have professionals and that's why we have, you know, organizations like National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and Deliver Fund that are out there staying on top of this so that, you know, so that parents don't have to make it their full-time job in order to stay on top of all of this. What's the dynamic between what you do and the parents? How do they, how do you generally interact with them? How do they contact you? How, you know, what kind of resources can they receive from you guys? It's a great question. We have a, a whole section for parents on our website where we not only have a, you know, human transporting 101 course that they can go through that that really helps them understand the the problem that they're dealing with. We have a digital defense for parents course that will be released sometime in the, um, you know, and then in really hopefully in the next few months. And we have apps, which is the HT Safeguard app on the App Store. Now, that is only available for iPhone right now in the United States. Uh, but we're going to be releasing it to Android and then eventually releasing it across across the globe. Uh, so we have lots of, of information and training on our website for you know, for parents so they can kind of understand the issue and understand how to start thinking about it. Because I think too often parents just get blindsided with information about whatever the latest issue is. And oftentimes that information is highly politicized. So they don't even know how to think about solving the problem and think about what the problem really is. And that's, that's, I think where, again, that parental intelligence comes in where we have to help parents understand what are the real threats. It's not, Again, it's not the stranger abductions in the United States of America and predominantly in westernized countries. While it does happen, the primary threat is online grooming. And so we need to help parents understand where they need to focus their time and resources. Yeah. And I mean, you have a global focus, obviously. It's not just it doesn't just pertain to the United States, what you guys do. And it seems to me like. You know, the United States just in general would be a kind of jurisdiction minefield in terms of bureaucracy and sharing information. How, how do you even begin to navigate this from an international uh, perspective? We have a uh, program that we're going to be launching in January that will start start helping to alleviate that minefield uh, across the United States. One thing I think a lot of people who don't live in the United States and even actually a lot of American citizens don't understand is that in the United States, we have over 18,000 individual law enforcement jurisdictions and none of them are all in this on the same page. So <laughs> at, at Deliver Fund, we work with over 650 law enforcement agencies 
that we have, you know, equipped, trained and advised. And that seems like a lot, but if you think about it, like we're not even, we're not even making a small dent in moving the needle in working with all of those law enforcement agencies. So what we have essentially created is this solution to that problem here in the United States. And then a, a few months later, we'll be releasing that internationally. So we've created a black box that solves this you know, child transporting problem. Now we'll be able to take that black box and, and send it to other countries so that, let's say you decide that you want to start a deliver fund in London. Great. We have the we have the ability for you to do that with the technical uh, and data back end, and then all you have to do is start working with your your local law enforcement there. And so, really, it's a it's a team of teams model. Our 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 system currently can work within fifty two different languages, so it's it's obviously very rapidly becoming language agnostic. And that's that's how we that's how we do this. It's it's by it's by data sharing by putting everybody on the same intelligence platform while also building in uh, uh, privacy rights as they pertain to different countries and different jurisdictions and really facilitating society to take control of the protection of our children back from the people who are trying to prey upon them. No, that's a great answer. Um, I suppose as well, people may be wondering, is there any way to get at some estimation or data in terms of just how much the child transportation industry is worth, how much money it's, it's making doing what it's doing? Does anyone have a, a kind of handle or an estimation on that kind of thing? This is this is a tough question, and I, I'm going to caveat my answer saying uh, you should take them with a grain of salt. So there are estimates that the human transporting industry ranges anywhere from 30 to $150 billion. Uh, I'm a math guy and an economics guy, and I don't see how the math and the economics works on the $150 billion. And if anybody wants to show me those equations, I'll be happy to rip them apart. Um, however, that it, does, it doesn't really matter. What matters is the fact that we're talking very, very big. Uh, it is the fourth largest, uh, and I'm talking globally here, it is the fourth largest illicit commodity market. Uh, obviously, number one is uh, financial fraud, right? That 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 uh, that prince in Nigeria that keeps emailing you, you know, <laughs> wanting to wanting to move his fortune to you, you know, doesn't do so because nobody responds. I mean, you know, that actually, while you might not respond, somebody eventually does, and so you know. Uh, financial fraud is obviously number one. And then when you have wars that are going on, um, uh, narcotics is always number two when there's wars going on, like there is right now with Russia, Ukraine, and all the different hotspots across the the world, then illegal arms is, is number three. But uh the, the human transporting industry is a distant number four. And the reason why, and I think this is really important for people to understand, is that when we talked about the, um, you know, the, the phones and the internet connectivity and the, the gaming and, and all of that, think about it this way. You, you alluded to this in the beginning when you said that it was, it was easier, at least in my generation, for parents to keep their children away from the creepy people. And everybody kind of knew who the predators were and, and you, you just you kept your children away. Well, now what we've done with internet connectivity and communications 
is we've essentially allowed the predators no longer to only access the children in the area where they're at. They now can access every single child who has a device across the globe for little to no cost. So we significantly reduced the barrier to entry for the, for the predator and simultaneously significantly increased their, their global access to prey. That's the issue. And, and that's really one of the downsides of the, of the internet age and of internet communications. And so we're not going to change that. That genie's not going to go back in the bottle. So we have to learn to enhance internet communications and to enhance parents' ability to screen the internet communications in order to keep their, their children safe and provide tools both to the children and to law enforcement and to industry partners and to parents to be able to do that. And that is going to happen through the wide dissemination of data. Uh, I don't know who first said it. I'm, it's probably in some ancient writing somewhere, but uh, sunshine is the best disinfectant. So the more people who have access to data and can actually see where the connections with criminal underground activity are, the safer our collective society will be. Yeah, for sure. People need to be empowered, don't they, with the tools and knowledge to act, which is something you're you're certainly doing. It's quite quite refreshing. I'm just gonna have a peek over to the questions we've had in the chat. Uh, Molly Cuddles asked, "I'd like to know who owns the big games in, in terms of the ones that you know predators are using to communicate with children. Uh, they surely hold some responsibility here. So, do you think these?" kind of providers who in a way facilitate these opportunities for nefarious people to to groom children do you think they bear any responsibility for what takes place on their platforms they absolutely bear responsibility the problem is that they don't currently bear a lot of liability and that's what we as the public need to demand from our politicians is that they increase the 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 liability of those platforms so that those platforms are forced to take action. When you think about this big tech, and I use that word very, um, very loosely, and, and this is not to demonize them. I think they're doing the best job they can. They just have a big scale issue. They know that you and I are having this conversation right now. YouTube knows it. My guess is uh, obviously that means Google knows it. Facebook and Meta and all the different companies know that. So they also know who it is that you had dinner with last night. They know who the members of your family with devices are. So why is it that those companies will allow a 40-year-old man who's 3,000 miles away from a child that they've never met before, why will they allow them to, uh, why will they allow them to speak to that child? Why will they allow them to communicate with that child? That's the problem, and that's what we have to demand that our politicians create regulatory liability for those companies so that they will be forced to fix that problem. That, you know, I got the beginning of the answer, the end of the answer, and I believe there were some gremlins in the middle there where I froze. But Nick, thank you very much for continuing like a pro uh, there. Appreciated. Uh, we've got another question as well. Just one a little left field here I want to uh, test you on. Uh, Agent Orange has asked, uh, Stephen, was your guest aware of CIA trafficking 
illicit white substances into low-income neighbourhoods when he was recruited. I'm not sure where, where that falls in in terms of conspiracy theories or documented fact. So uh, conspiracy theories, and, and uh, let me let me help people understand. Your law enforcement departments in your local areas are aware of a lot of crime that is happening that they're not doing anything about because they're focused on other problems. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you can't be all things to all people at all times. And and I think a lot of these conspiracy theories get uh, they get created because people think that, well, wait a minute, if you knew about this, why didn't you do something about it? Well, because we were busy doing this over here and we can only do one thing at a time. So so there is no there like it's not magic. Right. Uh, when I was at the um, when I was in the intelligence community. Uh, and in the military, there were many times where we saw something going on, maybe some illegal activity in another country or something like that. But we were on our way to go to go apprehend a terrorist who was going to go blow up a market. We weren't going to stop to solve that illegal problem so that we could then go solve the other one and then miss our opportunity to grab the terrorist. And so I think sometimes people need to understand that just because people don't do anything about something does not mean that they were in on it yeah it's a good point isn't it you've got i suppose you've got to choose your battles in that sense finite resources uh etc right. uh another question that maybe just leads into what you've just said i'm not sure how much you know about this specifically so forgive me if you're not familiar with it but amy's asked does nick think that they will ever solve the mystery of people going missing in u.s and canadian national parks a la the missing 411 so weird the circumstances in many of those cases. I have no idea what that's referring to, so I'm not going to comment on it. You know what? Neither do I. And I was really betting and on the hope that maybe you did. So uh, sorry, Amy, we've got nothing for <laughs> you there. No idea what that is. That'd be a lot of Googling for me to uh, uh, to have any type of, of uh, ill-informed answer. And I don't think anybody wants to sit here and watch me do that. That's great. Okay. So in terms of um, developing um, tools for parents in terms of devices that, you know, you can you can regulate usage and things like that or alert them to, to certain, you know, transgressions. How do you ensure that these things in their own right, are, you know, are airtight security wise? Because I imagine, you know, knowing what you know about apps and games and things like that, that must add a, an extra layer of anxiety to anything that you publish or create app wise or software wise. So I think people need to understand that nothing is perfect. I mean, the the governments get hacked all the time. Uh, intelligence agencies get hacked. So if, if intelligence agencies and companies as big as Google can't keep from getting hacked, then nobody else can. Uh, however, uh, there's also the, the trafficker or the the, the transporters are not um, terribly sophisticated. So the our specific adversary here. Uh, doesn't really have the capability to breach into our systems. Now, if we were doing this on something else, we may have some different concerns, but for what we're doing, it's 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 really, uh, really not a concern. Um, it's also uh, important to understand that when we talk about, you know, data privacy is really important, um, uh, probably one of the most staunch privacy advocates you can get. However, we still have to be able to inform the decisions that we make as a as a society and law enforcement has to be able to make those decisions as well. So how, how do we 
how do we bridge that that gap? And and the way that we look at it is when it comes to human transporting, as an example, you talked about the escort stuff, and we all know what that really is, right? There's no such thing as as escorts for the most part. I and mean, I'm sure there is in the in the fringes, but for the most part, it's you're going to get a very strongly system. worded letter from the escort community now, Nick. Oh, no doubt. I mean, are you kidding? I, I've got articles that have come out attacking me. Um, there's another article uh, from a uh, very pro prostitution uh, journalist who's getting ready to attack me. I mean, I, I deal with this all the time. So um, but 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 it doesn't matter what their opinion is. It only matters what the data says. And the data makes it very clear that this that the the prostitution and escort community is is very human trafficking adjacent. And there's a significant amount of human trafficking or pardon, pardon me, uh, human transporting that happens within that community. And so uh, so then it becomes one of data collection. Now, those people put advertisements up online, which means that they are willingly and volunteering voluntarily putting information to include their photo, phone numbers, email addresses, and descriptions on the open internet for everybody else to find. We are finding that information just like everybody else and bringing that publicly available information into a easy to find and query place that makes it fast and easy to do a check. So I'm very much against reaching into people's personal data, say their iCloud accounts or reading through their emails or things like that in order to find the information you need. That is a very uncreative uh, and quite frankly, rights abusing way of, of finding the information you need. You don't need to do that. They're literally putting all the information out there that you need in order to find the signal that you're looking for. And, and that's, that's why we focus on that. So any of the data that we put together, you could easily find within say five to 10 minutes on Google. If you know what you're looking but for, but we make for it sure. so you can, yeah, but we make it so you can find it in less than a second. And so our law enforcement partners can find it in less than a second. So it's all public data. So even if all the data we had was was leaked okay it's it's data that's already on the open internet anyway so it, it wouldn't really matter it's a good answer and uh, you kind of circled around something fairly controversial a moment ago that i want to get your opinion on and i just thought maybe we could step on a landmine for the last five minutes seems though you're no stranger to hit pieces uh etc but there seems to be this feeling from the old guard of sort of liberal feminism that prostitution was exploitative and it was no business for a woman and there was a push to emancipate women from this now it seems somewhere around third fourth wave feminism or uh, somebody takes an ultra progressive stand on these things actually speaks about prostitution as an empowering thing i think it's termed as sort of like sex positivity and it can almost be seen in certain circles to be rude to have a negative opinion on something like that. And I just wanted to get your opinion on whether you've kind of noticed this and what are your views on it, given you know the industry, you know what happens, you know what are the most common areas of, uh, you know, reality there. So I guess I'm going to be rude. Uh, <laughs> the no little girl 
grows up saying, you know what I want to do for a living? I want to be a prostitute. It doesn't happen. It is usually a set of circumstances, uh, most of the time poverty related, that leads to poverty or crime or addiction, right? I mean, they're all kind of intertwined. Uh, that leads to somebody making that choice. And now you can make it lots of philosophical arguments about, well, if they feel like it's the only choice, is it really a choice? And that that's all fine. Uh, but when it comes to the empowering piece, uh, I will die on this hill. I am extremely offended as the father of a daughter, as the son of a mother, as the brother to three sisters, as the husband to a wife of anybody making an argument that the only thing that a woman is good for is to sell her body for the pleasure of men. That, is, that is yet a that is yet another way that essentially uh, which which is really ironic when you consider it in feminism circles it's another way that men are exploiting women uh where uh i'm aware of a high net worth individual who uh hired a uh 18 year old and somehow justified it right even though he was in his um you know 40s at the time to jump out of a cake at a birthday party and uh the individual did an interview and i'd heard on a podcast where he said that he had changed that girl's life by providing her with income and with money and we all know that there were probably some other stuff went on and to which point I say, well, if you really wanted to change that girl's life, then why didn't you hire her to mow your lawn? Why didn't you hire her to clean the house? Why didn't you hire her to wash your car? Why didn't you give her an internship in your company and teach her a trade? Why didn't you support her going through school and say that she had to work in your company once she got her accounting degree, right? I mean, why is it that the only thing that you had for her to do involved her essentially being a commodity for your use. And so when it comes to uh, when it, and, and when it comes to the prostitution issue, we need to stop demonizing the uh, predominantly women and there's also some marginalized communities that are making that decision and instead demonize the men for participating in that community for who they are. Because if you are, I mean, I got 30 combat deployments under my belt. I was special ops. I was CIA. I'm a graduate of Harvard University. Like if you are a man and you are participating in prostitution, you are a weak man. And weak men are the most dangerous because they will exploit other people for their own benefit. And customers of prostitution are no different. Nailed it. That that was essentially everything I think and believe, but laid out in a far more eloquent and, and passionate manner, Nick. So thank you for that that very concise uh, and strident answer for sure. Uh, maybe you could uh, let our listeners and viewers know exactly where they can find more of your work and, and get more information about what you do. You could find me on uh, primarily Instagram. I'm on uh, LinkedIn and the other platforms as well at at the dot nick that's n-i-c dot mckinley you can find me at nick mckinley dot com uh, n-i-c mckinley dot com and that will you know link you out to all the different places and then you can find deliver fund uh which is really where we need 
the financial support of partners and donors at Deliver Fund. That's D-E-L-I-V-E-R fund, F-U-N-D dot org. Nick, that's been great. Thank you very much for speaking to me. I've, I've really enjoyed it. And, and thank you a bunch for the important work you're doing as well. Hey, thank you for having me on and thank you for helping us spread the word. No worries. Take care. Thank you for speaking to us.